Ryan Loritz is the lead pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Silicon Valley and the author of five books. He was recently voted one of the top 30 emerging Christian leaders and is the founder and president of the Kanos Movement, an organization aimed at establishing the multi-ethnic church in America as the new normal. Brian is a sought-after speaker with Family Life Ministry, the Global Leadership Summit, Catalyst, and other national conferences. Join us in welcoming back Pastor Brian Lorenz. Well, good morning, Scottsdale Bible Church. I heard a few mumbles. Listen, let's just have a little primer right now. As a chocolate preacher, I do well when people talk back to me. Ain't gonna throw me off a bit. It actually makes me preach faster because I know you're getting it. All right, so if you want a long sermon, you want to be here for a long time, have to use those oven mitts, don't say nothing to me, all right? Uh, but it, just say amen, preach it, brother, they ain't going to mess me up. When you're ready for me to finish, say land the plane, bring it on home, and we will land the plane and bring it on home. What a joy, joy, joy it absolutely is to be here with you, but especially to have my family with me. Uh, my wife is here with her fine self. Won't you stand up, sweetheart? Corey, wave at the people, wave at the people. Uh, she's from here. She graduated from Xavier, and uh, it's good being back home, hanging with her. Two of my sons are here. Miles and Jaden, why don't you stand up and say hi to the people? My oldest son isn't here because he actually told us, I kind of want to get finished with high school a year early. So he's staying at his school for a couple extra weeks to finish early. Uh, I'm praying that same spirit goes with him to college when he takes <laughs> off for college. Finish a year early. I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely love it. In fact, random thought. Um, pray for me. I'm on the board of a university, which means he gets to go there for free. So I'm hoping God speaks to him real clearly about where he needs to go to school. Amen. <laughs> Join me in prayer on that one. Join me in prayer on that one. What a joy it is to be here. Love Pastor Jamie. Love what this, uh, this church, Scottsdale Bible Church, is all about. If you're a guest with us and you're, you haven't settled into a church home, I'd say the search is over. This is where you need to be. Uh, I was a Bible uh, in Bible college way back east uh, many years ago, and our president of that Bible college was a guy by the name of Dr. Cheryl Babb. I see some of you nodding your heads. He actually, I think, was the second pastor here uh, at Scottsdale Bible Church, and uh, he, was, he was adored at our school. He had a wife with MS. Uh, she has since died, unfortunately. But uh, when I was in Bible college, I, I just loved how he just loved his wife as Christ loved the church, cared for her, and was just a man of impeccable character and godliness. So this church, uh, its reach is uh, not just national, it's global as well. And way before I came here to preach, you all have impacted me for the glory of God. Grateful for Tim Kimmel and so many other leaders here. Uh, it's just good to be here. If you have your Bibles, please meet me. In the book of Philemon, in the book of Philemon, this morning we're wrapping up a two-part series called Healing Broken Relationships. I'll explain more about that once we get into the teeth of the message, uh, but I want to read the whole book of Philemon. Chill out, it's just 25 verses, and uh, lift up a few thoughts, and then we can get on. You know, I really got to start checking my speaker request forms for the dates when I get invited places. Uh, love you guys, but man, coming here in the summertime... Um, Something else. I need my head examined. Pick me up in verse 1 of the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, most scholars tell us that's Philemon's wife, our sister, and Archippus, scholars say that's his son, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh, I see they got a ticker on me, 36 minutes and 48, 47, 46. That's cruel and unusual punishment to do that to a black preacher. I feel discriminated against, unbelievable. It's the last service, what we need time for? In the spirit of the World Cup, do I get stoppage time? Okay, here we go, verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray, verse six, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, verse 8, this is the meat of it, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, he's, he's going to butter him up a little bit. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant or slave but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17 is the heart of the letter. Here's his big ask. So if you consider me your partner, receive, receive, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And verse 22, it's got to be the most redemptively passive, aggressive verse in all of the Bible. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Here's Paul. He's saying, look, finally, this guy's wronged you. I want you to take him back. I want y'all to be brothers. By the way, prepare a guest room for me so I can come to your house to see if you did what I asked you to do. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, verse 24, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, speak to us. Pray that you see that your word falls on good ground, that it would take root, bear much fruit, and that, Lord God, you would change us. Use me to that end to instigate that change in the hearts of your people. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Once a month, Bank of America, the institute that we bank with, sends us a little document, it's called a bank statement. First thing my wife does when she gets this document, she'll reach for another document called our checkbook. And she'll sit down with these two documents and she's got one aim, she wants to make sure these two documents are getting along real good. She wants to make sure that these two documents are are walking in lockstep harmony and agreement with one another. 
This whole process of making sure these two documents, the bank statement and our checkbook, are, are, are walking in lockstep harmony, it's known as reconciliation or reconciling. And to watch my wife do this, you understand that this process at times can be tedious and meticulous and arduous. In fact, no embellishment here, it's the way my wife's wired, I've seen her spend well north of an hour tracking down a nickel. At no point, which by the way, if you've got that kind of personality, where, where you could spend a lot of time, just if it's, if it's a penny off, you can't sleep at night, you're gonna do whatever it takes, would you just clap if that's just you? If that's just you? If you could be off by a couple hundred dollars, could you sleep well at night? Would you just clap? <laughs> hilarious, hilarious. I'm fine with the chaos. So here's my wife. She'll spend well north of an hour. At no point does she go, ah, oh, we're a little off. Uh, it's okay. No, 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 no. She's going to turn everything over that needs to be turned over to make sure that these two documents are reconciled. The tragedy is far too many people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ is, is there's so many people who spend more time doing the work of reconciliation with their bank statement than in their relationships with people who've been made in the image of God. My experience in pastoral ministry has just betrayed this reality that far too many of us have too high a degree of tolerance for broken relationships. One of the great realities of our, of our world is, is that all of us, all, not all of you, all of us know the tragedy of relationships gone south. All of us in here know what it's like to maybe start off wonderful in a friendship and that friendship's going well, man, and there's chemistry there and you all are hanging out and you're riding tandem bikes together and it's great, it's wonderful, there's chemistry there and deep, authentic community and wonderful conversations and then later on, maybe the lie comes out or the gossip where you start to see the drama and the mess and the and the stuff that's going on, or maybe the idiosyncrasies happen, and, and all of a sudden the relationship just begins to unravel. Maybe some of you, you've got a sibling in your life that you just, you just haven't talked to in some months, or maybe even some years. There's distance there. Others of you, maybe there's a strained relationship with a parent or with an adult child. All of us in marriage, we know what it's like to go through seasons where we're not walking in oneness, we're kind of drifting away in isolation. Why is it a universal theme that if you put two people together and just give it time, drama's going to happen? Why is that? Genesis chapters 2 and chapter 3 tells us why. In Genesis chapter 2, it says of the first human relationship that they were naked, or naked as they say down south, and unashamed. It's a statement of their transparency and vulnerability and authenticity. But I don't think it's just a statement of their physical transparency and authenticity and vulnerability. I think it's a statement of their comprehensive transparency and vulnerability and authenticity. Think here are two people who are walking in oneness and unity, and then all of a sudden Genesis chapter 3 happens. Sin enters into the world. What's the first thing they do? They go to the local Louis Vuitton and buy a set of designer fig leaves. They hide from one another. 
The authenticity is gone. The transparency is gone. The vulnerability is gone. Not just even horizontally between Adam and Eve, but even between them and God. God shows up once sent into this world and he says, where are you? They used to hang out and fellowship and walk with him. But now that sin enters into the world, it just throws relationships off. In fact, here's what Genesis 3 teaches us. It's a completely un-American notion that sin is never just personal. It's profoundly social. If you read Romans chapter 5, that great doctrine of original sin, Paul says sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and it infected all of us. All of us, every nook and cranny of our lives is colored by sin. In fact, I love what my friend Tom Schrader right here in the, in, the, in the Phoenix area says. He says, look, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. <laughs> Just colors every aspect of our lives. So the question on the table is why are relationships so hard? Answer, a three-letter word with I right in the middle of it, sin. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, all God's children are sinful. In fact, the person you're sitting next to right now is a deeply flawed sinner. In fact, right now, can we just have, I know I'm in a wonderful conservative church, but can we just have a Pentecostal moment? Can you just turn to the person next to you and say, hello, sinner? Some of y'all said that a little too emphatically. You've been dying to say that. We're all just broken, sinful people. That's why, that's why look, to, to pick on women for a split second, whenever a woman tells me, ah, I just don't do well with female relationships, they're just too catty, too much drama, I do better with male relationships. And, and, and I want to say, as if you don't have drama. Or to even it out and pick on men. I hear men bemoan how difficult relationships and friendships with other men can be. I'm talking substantive stuff. Dennis Rainey says the reason for that is you put two men next to each other, the natural default is to compete. Relationships with people are hard. Why? Because we are sinners, deeply stained and deeply flawed individuals. So if that's the truth, then the ugly reality is, Brian, if every time you are in relationship with someone and the drama rises to the surface, the sin comes out and you set up your own little boundary and emotionally moonwalk away, you can't complain when you get in your 40s, 50s, and 60s as to why am I so lonely? If you want deep relationships with people that go over the long haul, you better learn how to do the hard work of reconciliation. This illustration doesn't work well down south, but out west it does. Right now, in all of our refrigerators, we have something called salad dressing. Down south, if I said gravy, that would go over well, but I grew up down south, by the way. But we all have something called salad dressing. Now, here's the truth of the matter is, none of us just takes that salad dressing and squeezes it onto the salad. No, what we do first is we shake it up. Why? Because salad dressing is made up of two things that don't naturally get along, oil and water. They just naturally drift away from each other. But if we want to maximize that salad dressing, we don't sweep it under the rug. We do an intentional act called shaking. 
That's reconciliation. The natural default because of sin is to drift apart. But if I want something substantive, at times in every relationship, I got to do some shaking. We got to talk about the drama. We got to talk about the mess. We got to talk about how you came across. We've got to do the work of reconciliation. We come now to the book of Philemon. If there's one word I want you to write in the margin of your Bible or in your Evernote app or whatever notes app you use to take notes on your devices, it's the word reconciliation. The book of Philemon is the handbook on reconciliation. Here is Paul trying to mediate a broken relationship. Philemon is an individual who's living in Colossae. He's a very wealthy man. We know that for, from two profound clues in our text. The, the Bible says that, that there's a church that meets in his house. He's got a large enough house to hold a church. Not only that, but we also know he's wealthy, and I hate... I hate saying this as an African-American man, but we also know he's wealthy because he owns at least one slave, probably multiple slaves. Now, it's impossible for us to approach any text of Scripture kind of detached from our worldview or our biases. And so, as an African-American man, I bring my African-American eyes to the book of Philemon, and I nurse a low-grade fever with Paul because, Paul, I want you to be far more vociferous in denouncing the institution of slavery. I want you, Paul, to come out and throw a haymaker at Philemon and say, you can't own people. Paul didn't do that. But I do think he takes a subtle swipe at the institution of slavery. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant or a slave as a beloved brother. I think this is a subtle swipe. I think Paul is saying, I'm looking to the day when there's such a closeness in you all's relationship because of what the gospel is doing in both of your hearts that there is no more master-slave dynamic here. You are two brothers who at the playing field of the foot of the cross, it is level. And so here's Onesimus. He runs away from Philemon. He's He's Philemon's slave, and if it was just about him running away, I wouldn't see a problem with that. Go ahead and get your freedom. But most scholars tell us, here's Onesimus. He's enslaved to Philemon in Colossae. He ends up meeting Paul in Rome. And most scholars tell us that in order to fund his trip from Colossae to Rome, he steals from Philemon. He takes from him. He wrongs him. We're in a two-part series on restoring broken relationships. Last night, we asked the question, what do I do when I've played the role of Onesimus? What do I do when I've wronged someone? Everyone here, just nod your head like this because all of us has played the role of Onesimus. We may not have intended of doing it, but, but we've said things we shouldn't have said. We've done things we shouldn't have done. We may have had the best of intentions. None of us here are perfect. We've wronged people. 
Last night was about what do I do when I played the role of Onesimus and I've wronged someone and we've walked through that. This morning, I wanna wrap up our series by looking at it from the vantage point of Philemon. What does God expect of me in the work of reconciliation when I've been wronged or hurt by others? All of us in this room, not only have we played Onesimus at times, but all of us in this room, we, we know what it feels like to play the part of Philemon. Some of you all, you were wronged by your dad. Walked out on you. Left you hanging. Others of you, you've walked down the long and arduous and lonely road of divorce. You weren't a perfect spouse. You did the best you could, but you never saw the betrayal coming. You've been wronged. Others of you, you made that business deal with that business person and maybe they said like you, they were a follower of Jesus and handshake deal and a little while later they weren't holding up their end of the bargain and left you hanging out to dry. Others of you, you've been gossiped on, lied about, stabbed in the back. What do you do? Parenthetically, this message is not about restoring a relationship with someone who's assaulted you or abused you or shown by a consistent pattern of behavior to, to, to just not even attempt to be reconciled with you. For those who've criminalized you, it's important that you understand that the God we serve is both, is both a forgiving God and a just God. You, you can forgive and pursue legal means. I've got an ex-family member right now serving time in jail and they should be there. You should also keep in mind Romans 12, 18. Write it down, look it up, put hot, smiley faces around it. Paul writes, as best as you can, be at peace with all people. I love that because what that means is there's sometimes, gee, I, I've tried. I've had the conversations, I've, I've gone over, above, and beyond. Jesus says, if that's you, shake the dust off your feet and keep it moving. But in my experience, that's 5% of the time. Many of us could painfully say, I don't think I've done the best I can. What does God expect of me, the one who's been wronged? Look at verse 17. This is the epicenter of the book of Philemon. Here's Paul. He's saying to Onesimus, you've now come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've experienced what Rosaria Butterfield calls the train wreck of the gospel. You've got to go back and make it right. He now writes a letter to Philemon to get him to do what he's asking him to do in preparation of receiving Onesimus. He says in verse 17 to Philemon, so if you consider me your partner, receive, receive, receive him as you would receive me. That word receive is an interesting word. Paul's writing in Greek, if you were to do a New Testament study on that word receive, more times than not, it is used in settings where people are enjoying wonderful fellowship over a meal with each other. It's a term that speaks to hospitality. It's 
a term that speaks to friendship. Paul's not telling Philemon just to hear him out. He's not telling him just to accept his apology. No, Paul is envisioning a day where here is Philemon who has been defrauded, wronged, betrayed, stolen from, actually sits down and has a meal with this person who's wronged him. In other words, Paul is envisioning a day in which their relationship post the offense is actually better than it was prior to the offense. I'm thinking now of Nelson Mandela. You know his story, first black president of the Republic of South Africa. Prior to that, he spent decades in Robben Island where he was wronged by his jailers. They, they went over, above, and beyond, out of their way to make life miserable for him. He finally gets out of jail, runs for president, ends up getting it. And if you're a white South African, you are highly nervous because if you know anything about Mandela prior to going to jail, he did not adopt Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent philosophy. He blew stuff up. He was what some would call militant. And so now white people in South Africa, it, it, now that he's president, is he going to take the opportunity to exact revenge on us? All that was immediately quelled on the night of his inauguration gala. It was a sight that dumbfounded the world. His first directive as president, he demanded that the jailer who wronged him on Robben Island would sit right down next to him at his table and break bread together over a meal. The sight of Mandela enjoying a meal with the very one who wronged him. Dumbfounded the world. Oh, friends, don't you see? This is what God in Christ requires of us. Romans 15, 7, Paul writes, Therefore, welcome, welcome, same Greek word, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Don't you see? Every broken relationship is an opportunity for we Philemons to astound our Onesimuses, our enemies, and the world with the beauty of reconciliation. So someone wrongs me, for me to retaliate, go tit for tat, that doesn't turn heads. That doesn't radiate the glory of Christ. But for someone to wrong me and for me to refuse to return evil for evil, but to welcome them to dinner, to explore friendship, Wow, okay, in our last 14 minutes and seven, six, five seconds that we have together, no stoppage time. How do we do this? Three quick things. Number one, we're gonna need a gospel framework. Some of you are saying this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible, Brian. Don't you understand the level of betrayal that happened here? Don't you understand what this person did? If I were to pass around the mic, you could always give me plausible excuses from a worldly perspective as to why you should not even consider reconciliation. And remember, there is a 5% bucket. I'm not talking about that 5% bucket. See, what Paul is asking Philemon to do should seem hard because if Philemon could do it in his own strength, he wouldn't need Christ. 
So what we need is a gospel framework. Yes, I had you write down the word reconciliation because it sums up the the book of Philemon, but this word reconciliation, it sums up all of scripture. The arc of scripture points to reconciliation. Here God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, this utopia. He, He says, look, eat of every tree in the garden except for one, just one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Adam and Eve do? They eat of this tree. And God, he doesn't say, you know what? Done. Done. I create this wonderful environment. I only ask you not to do one thing and you up and do it. I'm just done. Now, what does he do? He finds an animal, he kills it, covers their sin with the blood and covers their nakedness. Later on in the latter half of the book of Exodus on through Leviticus and Numbers, here is God. He's setting up the nation of Israel. What does he do? He builds into the very economy and structure of Israel a little mechanism called reconciliation. It's as if God's saying, I know you're going to onesimus me. I know you're going to violate me. I know you're going to hurt me. I know you're going to betray me. Not once will I turn my back on you. Here's what you do to make it right. Find a bull, find an, find an ox, find a goat, whatever it is, take this animal and the blood will atone for your sins and we can now be reconciled. Home throughout the Old Testament, what does Israel do? Perpetually offends God hurts God, betrays God, wounds God, not once does God say, done. In fact, things reach an apex on a hill called Calvary where God sends his only son, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it was Christ who was reconciling us to God and has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. Don't you understand? If God ever gave up on you and put down that ministry of reconciliation, you would be gone. You are inhaling and exhaling right now, we Onesimuses, by the reconciling work of God through Jesus Christ. And in some way, shape, or form, our horizontal relationships must tell the truth of the vertical reconciliation we have received from God. It should be Christians who are leading the way and doing the hard work of reconciliation. I love mayonnaise, that's my problem. Mayonnaise is a bit of a chemical phenomenon because it contains two things that just don't get along. Again, oil and water. But oil and water dwell in close community in mayonnaise. In fact, you don't ever need to shake mayonnaise up. Why is that? Because mayonnaise contains something called an emulsifier. An emulsifier is simply a substance that brings together two disparate communities into close community with one another. And mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. It's as if egg says, come here, oil, hang out with me, stay plugged in with me. And a byproduct of that is you will be in close community to water because that water is plugged into me. I think what Paul is getting at here is how can two individuals, Philemon and Onesimus, tolerate a broken relationship when they are both plugged into the emulsifier of Jesus Christ. It is a tragedy. That is why in my church, we, we walk with people who are having marital difficulties, but, but we don't really tolerate marriages that file for divorce under the heading of irreconcilable differences. 
How can you claim to both have Christ in your life? Be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And not work it out. Secondly, not only must we have a gospel framework, but if we're going to experience reconciliation, we must consider our enemies a useful friend. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Scholars tell us this is a play on words. Onesimus, his name literally means useful. In fact, scholars tell us that Philemon in all likelihood named him that. That his name was something else. Then, then Philemon owns him and he declares prophetically over him what he is hoping Onesimus to be useful. But now what happens? Philemon wakes up one day, Onesimus is gone, and then he discovers that Onesimus has stolen from him. And what does he do? He gets angry, he grieves, he runs the gamut of emotions, and then he checks the box, shrugs his shoulders, and says, useless, I didn't need him anyways. Is that not what we do to people who wrong us? Oh, if I could commend to you one book, During your summer reading, it is James McBride's classic book. James McBride wrote a book called The Color of Water. It's a New York Times bestseller. Here's James McBride, a biracial kid paying tribute to his Jewish mother. He tells the story when his Jewish mother back in the 40s was dating a black man and and her parents found out and they they were vociferous. And their prohibitions, you must not date him, you must not date him. But she continues on, she defies them. Finally, they get to their limit and they hold a funeral for their daughter. For the rest of their lives, her family treats her as dead. Now don't give them too hard of a time. Because again, don't we do this to others? Some of us are silent assassins with people who've wronged us. We can cut you off with the quickness, delete your name out of our phone book, keep it moving with such an ice cold demeanor. But Paul says to Philemon, he used to be useful to you, but now you regard him as useless you have no right to consider him as useless. He still is useful to you if for no other reason than he's been made in the image of God. God does not love you any more than the one who wronged you. Can I mess y'all up? I was out to dinner some years ago with a good friend of mine, actually my godbrother, who's an internationally trained chef. We're sitting there at the dinner table, and the waiter comes over, and he, he starts to tell us about the specials. Boy, they sound off the chain, so much so that I order one of them. Immediately, my godbrother says to the waiter, can you give us a minute? The waiter leaves. I'm like, what's going on? My God, brother says, look, this doesn't happen in in all of the cases, but you need to know that in many cases, the specials are items that are about to go bad. (laughs) I'd have messed y'all up, haven't I? So here is this chef faced with a conundrum. These items that he's paid money for are about to go bad. They're about to become useless, and he doesn't want to take the financial hit. So what does he do? 
He mixes them up and creates a concoction, calls them special, (laughs) and unloads them off on us. What makes these items go from the category of useless to special, it's the chef. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Philemon, you want to treat your enemy as useless, but chef God is not through with him. He's special. It bears repeating, God does not love you any more than the one who hurt you. And it's when I understand that they're a useful friend, that I'm now poised to do the work of reconciliation. Let's go home on this one. So here's Philemon, having been hurt and wounded by Onesimus, who's stolen from him. Paul is asking for Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus by welcoming him back. But what does this mean exactly? Is Philemon to just let bygones be bygones and they never talk about the truth of what happened? Do they never go there and talk about Onesimus stealing from him? Does reconciliation mean avoiding these kinds of messy conversations? No, it does not. Look at verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is acknowledging a wrong has happened. If reconciliation is going to ever take place, for a few moments, you must turn on the history channel. Go back. You gotta talk about it. We gotta do an autopsy here. You know what an autopsy is? An autopsy exists for one reason, to ask the question what happened, but we ask the question what happened in the past so we can now move forward, so I can get the closure. I'm thinking again of South Africa, Bishop Desmond Tutu in his classic book, No Future Without Forgiveness, he deals with reconciliation He writes, it was pointed out that none of us possess a kind of fiat by which we can say, let bygones be bygones. And hey, presto, they then become bygones. Our common experience is, in fact, is the opposite, that the past, far from disappearing or lying down and being quiet, has an embarrassing and persistent way of returning and haunting us unless it has, in fact, been dealt with adequately. Unless we look the beast in the eye, we find it has an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. So that couple is going to rise from the ashes of infidelity. We got to stop for a moment and we got to talk about the affair. That friendship is going to mend after the gossip, the lie, the slander. We got to stop and talk about it. Now, Onesimus may not want to talk about it. The person who violated the other may not want to talk about it, but tough luck. You can choose your actions. You just can't choose your consequences. Reconciliation is not sweeping it under the rug and acting like it never happened. Reconciliation is shaking that bottle 
So, Dad, I got to talk about why, why'd you leave me when I was a kid? We got to go there. It's the author, Philip Yancey, who once said that the three greatest three-word phrases in the English language are, I love you, I forgive you, what's for dinner? (laughs) I love you is easy to say, I forgive you is very hard to say, but what's for dinner, which deals with reconciliation, is almost impossible. That's why we need a savior. (laughs) Don't you understand? I've been preaching this wrong to you all along. Yeah, it's a good secondary application, but Philemon is primarily about the gospel. Philemon is God, we're Onesimus, and Paul is a type of Christ who is reconciling the broken relationship. Until you see yourself as Onesimus, I'm the one who's violated God daily. I betray him daily. I wound him daily. I hurt him daily. And yet what is God? Our Philemon does. He stands there with open arms, ready to kill the fatted calf and invite us to the party, reconciling us back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And in these divided times, the world doesn't need another dose of partisan politics. Neither does it need to see a body who's tolerating each other. Tolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you. The world doesn't need to see us cloning each other into our own image. They need to see people seated at the table who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like one another, and yet seated at the dinner table, doing the hard work of reconciliation, because that's what God in Christ has done for us. Will you pray with me? I believe as I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit has been bringing to mind faces of people who have wounded and wronged and hurt us. Will you ask God to begin to speak to you as it relates to what he wants you to do in the work of reconciliation with the one who wronged you? Will you ask God to give you the strength to have the conversation, to write the note, to send the text or the email, to pick up the phone and to be reconciled. Paul's words in Romans 15 ring true. Welcome, welcome, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. Do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.